Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from North America, England, Australia, and even far-flung places like Malaysia, the Canary Islands, and the Arabian Peninsula. Thanks for joining me, and I'm really lucky to have a global audience. I think it just goes to show the power of digital media, of course, but also the worldwide fellowship of gearheads out there, because wherever you are, we all speak the same language. So thanks for coming along for the ride, and by the way, you might hear a little gravel in my voice right now. I'm just getting over one of those late summer colds, but uh, it's not going to stop me. So don't forget to follow the show, share it with a few of your friends, because growing the audience is almost impossible without you. Also, thanks for the suggestions on who I should have as my special guest for the 100th episode. And that's still a little bit down the road, but I've got some pretty interesting recommendations, and I love to see your take on this, so keep them coming. You can reach me on Instagram at Horsepower Heritage, or just visit the homepage at horsepowerheritage.com, click on the contact button there, and fire away. All right, well, today you're in for a treat, especially if you're a Porsche fan or you like endurance racing. Maybe you've heard of Luftgekult, which is a Los Angeles-based gathering of air-cooled Porsches that's become one of the cornerstones of classic car events in recent years, actually, because of the caliber of cars you see there. It's always first-rate, but also the venues for the event are always changing and always interesting. It's one of my personal favorite events. So I picked up the phone a couple of weeks ago, and a few days later, I was sitting down with Patrick Long. He's one of the founders of Luftgekult, and he was a Porsche factory driver for many years. Among his victories in motorsport are two class wins at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, one at the 24 Hours of Daytona, twice at the 12 Hours of Sebring, a class win in the Baja 1000, and many series championship titles over his 20-plus year racing career. Pat's done with full-time racing now, and he's moved into a new role as a Porsche brand ambassador and a competition advisor for Porsche Motorsports North America, which is tailor-made for the only American to have ever been a Porsche Works driver. Quite an accomplishment. So needless to say, I was really honored to spend some time with Pat to talk about all this stuff, and probably my favorite thing was to hear his insights on the technique and, frankly, the stress of racing at the highest levels of motorsport. It was fascinating. And by the way, you can find the full video version of this episode on the Horsepower Heritage YouTube channel. And I think whether you listen over here or watch over there, you're going to be as impressed as I was because Pat is a deadly serious professional and he lays it all out there. So that's a lengthy intro, but I think you get the picture. For Patrick Long, it's always been about the love of high performance, hard work, and the quest for excellence. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now my interview with Patrick Long. 
right here on Horsepower Heritage. Dude, thank you so much. Short notice, you're super busy, I know, and especially right now coming into, we're less than a month out from Lufkakult. Taking it in stride. It's, um, events are wild. They're not dissimilar to racing, actually. Um, There's a time and a date where this thing's gonna go off, and whether your race car or your event product is ready, people are showing up, and uh, you gotta make it happen. Eight times now you've done this in, well, is it, it's eight times, seven times in LA, once at Indy, right? Yeah, a couple times in Europe, uh, we bounced around, we've done some pop-ups, but yeah, this is Luft 8, seven of them in Southern California, and one of them uh, last year in Indianapolis. What what was the decision behind that? Was it just Indy being a motorsports mecca and kind of a central location for... Yeah, I mean, venues always lead our decisions, um, but Indianapolis, Sports Car Together Fest and Porsche, uh, that was an event that they were pulling together, and they asked us if we could pull something in that might help promote uh, awareness around the city and the event that they're building up over at the Speedway. And so we uh, found a couple of super cool venues, and uh, Bottle Works, an old Coca-Cola bottling plant, is where we ended up popping up in a really cool part of town and the subscription uh, and response from people and cars was unbelievable. I mean, the Midwest has an insane amount of Porsches that uh, we underestimated. Obviously, SoCal is uh, just flushed and and the unfair advantage with uh, air-cooled Porsches, but going to the Midwest was awesome. In 2020, we were supposed to be in Durham. So this was kind of a follow-up to the pandemic and getting shut down from doing our event. Our original Luft 7 was going to be in Durham. So we took that year off. Durham wasn't ready for us because they were so backlogged with events from being shut down. So long story short, we moved it to the Midwest and loved every bit of it. And uh, yeah, we'll bounce back out of LA uh, here and there. But the, the heart and soul of this show and the experience and people coming from all over the world to meet up, a lot of the feedback is, I want my car in the show and I live on the East Coast, so can you do a show in my hometown? And my response is, well, the event is more about everybody kind of descending to one place, not us coming so that you don't have to drive more than 20 miles. (laughs) Well, I mean, it says a lot about the show that people drive from the East Coast to be there. Uh, And also the venues. I'm always impressed how you guys select the venue, how you curate everything, the art direction behind the event, as well as uh, just the installations. Let's talk about how much work goes into that because you got a whole team behind you. Absolutely. Um, Attention to detail, triple checking, um, creating experience. Um, I mean, a lot of people have heard me talk on and off the record that Initially, when I started uh, taking my first air-cooled Porsche to some events, I found myself uh, yearning for more. Um, I certainly couldn't invite or impress anybody that wasn't from the Porsche car world to coming to a a normal car show in a parking lot. Um, And so I started thinking, what is a West Coast any given weekend experience like? And if I added cars into that and used the architecture as a backdrop, uh, what could we do with it? And I've had a lot of help from some super creative minds, people like Jeff Sward and Howie Idelson, who come from uh, an automotive, but also an artistic background and from production and set design, uh, creative direction on and offline digital. I love uh, utilizing people who sort of are a 50-50 blend of automotive uh, or motorsports, but also understand the, the professional side of creativity. I like that. And also, you know, Porsche as a company has always had fantastic art direction in their marketing and advertising. Mm-hmm. So it's just a great 
blend of all that and it's it's very on brand which i love so yeah i mean if you think about the heritage of this company and how cool uh, a 356 or a 550 Spider has always been in the lineage of storytelling, of black and white imagery. When you think back to the Steve McQueen, James Dean heyday, um, competition motors, uh, it, it's all there uh, for the taking and telling that story um, to people who don't know the history and the heritage of Porsche is super, super engaging and a lot of fun for all walks of life. And I think uh, celebrating legends but also introducing new artisans and people that are brand new to the scene. We all remember what it was like the first time we splashed into something that was super inspiring and overwhelmingly cool. And you really want to try and recreate that buzz and not just plug and play, same time, same place, every single time. So, um, you know, sometimes I say more than I should as far as um, our sort of ingredients or secret sauce, but. I think everybody understands now what Luft does, and I'm proud. Um, I'm proud of the team that we've inspired lots of brands, lots of shows, both in and outside of the Porsche community that sort of come with an inspired or or an uh, an attempt or an evolution of what we do. I think that's what um, art is all about: is um, expressing and taking some risk, and then evolving and pivoting so that anybody that is on your tail uh, has a little bit of a moving target. Yeah, for sure. You know. Uh the Porsche world can be a little bit intimidating for outsiders. Yeah. There's so much to learn, but that's another thing I like about the event. If if you're not a Porsche person, it is like diving into a like a master class when you go to Luftgekühlt. Yeah, I I think the idea of air-cooled and that subdivision um, category that I started hearing and referring to certain cars that means a lot to people who understand the Porsche world, but to outsiders, it means almost nothing. Um, and with that, I wanted to describe and display what air-cooled means from like an all-encompassing umbrella. So celebrating originality, survivors, restorations, outlaws, hot rods, this character, that character, it was about telling the complete story versus here's the most expensive or original cars or whatever, most preserved cars or uh, restored cars. I think um, it's about telling um, the story of all walks of life. And I also think the human story is as important as the car story. So the people that come to the event, the styles that people bring out, the, the clothes they put on their bodies, um, the food they consume, it needs to be more than just Porsche. It needs to be an experience and your backdrop and your surroundings are a custom tailor-made education. But also, if you just wanna see people that you haven't seen in a year or connect with new friends, um, that is as tall of an order for us, as big of a focus for us as perfecting cars. Well, you guys nail it every time. And, and by the way, the other cool thing is you can be strolling around and find yourself next to a legend, a Hurley Haywood, a Vic Elford. And um, I, I had, you know, I had Vashek Polak Jr. on the show a few months ago. And to be able to, you know, hear his stories, his memories of his dad, it brings it all to life. So that's another great thing about the show is it really, it's kind of a living thing. Yeah, I think it is a living thing, and it's uh, an experience for me and, and, and for the team um, in evolution, um, in learning from your mistakes, in trying to create fresh experiences, and, and as you said, telling stories. 
uh, the human stories. Um, and, and if we still have legends of Porsche who want to come out and are asking, hey, can you get me in? Can you uh, feature my car? Then we know we're doing something right. But at the same time, if we have people that are outside the community and don't own a Porsche that really are stoked to come to the show, that's the other side of it. That's the bookends. And introducing um, the next generation. I was a kid that grew up in Southern California. I got dragged to vintage events, car shows, races, modern, you name it. And I remember vividly like when I was standing there looking at the clock, like, are we going to go? Are we going to go? Versus I didn't want it to end. So I think everybody has those personal experiences that they put into their product and into their brand. And Ultimately, you know, in 2014, when, when I decided to do this little car show at Deus with 38 cars, I always said, and it sounds a little bit cliche, but I said, this brand will define itself. This is about a community. This isn't about, about you know, me or, or any given character in our team. It's really about the community and it's creating a platform. So with that, the brand defines its decisions and the feedback from the community is um, really what helps us determine our next moves and taking events to Austria or Germany um, to the UK and bringing a touch of Southern California to those communities. That was a, a big task for us. I mean, producing a car show in your own backyard, that's a lot of work. Uh, people who do that themselves, big or small, they know how much work that takes with logistics, with scheduling, with dealing with the local government. But when you take that remote and you really have only a small amount of time on the ground to produce and you have to do a lot uh, from a distance, it's, it's the ultimate challenge. So we learned a lot on those years as well. Patrick, was there a particular car that you secured one year for Luft that made you think, oh, wow, this is it. This is a monster. Oh, there's always surprises. And, you know, the, the ideas come forward spontaneously. Um, the 804 um, and, and just on the back of losing Dan Gurney and everything that Dan was to motorsport, to Southern California, to Porsche, uh, winning, winning a Formula One race and, and having that car on site at Canal Lumber in 2018. Um, the SL um, at Lift 4, um, the first Le Mans winning car, um, a Gamund, a, a, you know, the, the precursor to the 356. Cameron Healy supported us um, getting that car out. Um, it just Those types of cars have so much magic. They are one of one. Um, they have so much sort of sweat and, and cells living in the seats of those cars that they're just um, such a pleasure to even be uh, in, in and around, let alone to see three generations of a family stand around those cars and tell stories. And we don't put up stanchions. We don't put them in glass cases. Um, the owners, we know them uh, on a personal basis, and uh, they, they want these cars to be enjoyed. So, yeah, I could, I could list off a ton of them. But anytime you've got uh, early aluminum cars, those are, those are, to me, the cream of the cream. Oh, yeah, to see a Gamund Coupe with the rough metal finishing on it and you can see you, you can just imagine hammer swinging on that thing you know yeah that's one of the experiences that i think is so amazing um about coach building and what rod emery does today with uh his product i mean you walk into Rod's shop right now in the middle of the week and it is so loud on the floor that you cannot have a conversation within two feet of, of two people um, because they are banging that metal. They're straightening that metal. They're on an English wheel. It's, it's old school. And so when you think back to even uh, before that in, in aluminum, uh, unbelievable. I really like, by the way, how hands-on Rod is. You know, he could stand back and just sort of orchestrate things. 
but he's working as hard as anyone else. You know? Yeah, it's in his blood. Um, he's such a hands-on guy. Uh, right now, we're working on a project together, which I've done some smaller projects with Rod, but I've never done uh, a, a project as large as we're in right now, uh, creating a, a garage and social space, uh, brick and mortar uh, in Southern California. It's something I've been talking about for more than a decade, and, and finally it's happening. And um, the point of Rod is, is that he gets in there, he rolls his sleeves up, sleeves up and his hands are dirty. And it's the same when you go to his shop and you see that he could build every single piece of that car and the guys respect him. He's got a full crew that's working, but all those guys look up to him because he really created his own uh, product through the mindset of his grandfather uh, being a, a hot rod custom guy and then his dad being one of the parts obsolete founders and his family, his uncle. I mean, they're all famous builders. So just like Rod's kids, Rod grew up at, as a two-year-old, you know, with a tool in his hand and uh, it's in his nature. I also like the fact that the Emery's kind of, they sort of blew up the, the whole purist vibe in a sense, not in a bad way, but before the Emery Outlaws, uh, you know, the cars were like under glass all the time. Mm-hmm. You don't mess with them. They're perfect as they are. But that's opened up kind of a wider point of view, a wider creative community. And I think it totally has added to the mystique and just, I mean, his cars, not only are they beautiful, but they're incredibly perf- well performing cars. Yeah, I think that there are two types of people in this world. There are people who um, buy clothing because of who sewed it and what it is and whether it's vintage clothing or modern clothing. And there's other people who um, sew their own clothes or modify clothes to tailor make uh, their style or their fit. And they're an artisan family. They're a custom family. And, And I think you look back to the 40s and 50s and taking uh, Fords and modifying them for the dry lakes or for drag racing or for circle track racing. And I'm sure it was back then the same thing. You're taking a pre-war car and you're chopping the fenders off it or you're chopping the roof down. And to apply that to the Stuttgart product of, of Porsche, I'm sure the first couple times that uh, somebody took a, a saw to a 356, there were uh, much debate. But in this day and age, I think we see it, look, there's a lot of custom builders, there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of um, questionable decisions, but there's also a lot of people that are really doing awesome stuff. And I think the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Everybody uh, has the freedom to take their product that they own and do what they want to it. And I think that we like to select cars at Luft that divide the room. Uh, it might not be that we think they're the best or most uh, amazing cars on the execution or creative side, but they're interesting. They tell a fresh story. Um, and creativity and individuality. Um, This year, one of our themes was really to bring new cars to the forefront, both trucked in, legendary, invited cars, but also the cars from the community that have submitted in and uh, will be welcome to bring their car and, and have it featured inside the gates. And there's a lot of cars that have been at Luft 3, 4, 5, 6. They probably won't be at Luft 8. And, and that might ruffle some feathers or hurt some feelings, but um, I'm always candid. It's got to change. It, there has to be different themes. We'll have those legacy cars back, but for a lot of people, they, they want to see new, fresh blood. If you go to the Cars and Coffee in your local community and you see the same cars every given weekend, at a certain point, I think you stop going over there and checking the car out, looking at its interior, checking its stance. And so 
with that mindset, I want people who are jaded beyond jaded. They work on these cars, they sell these cars, they live around these cars. I want them to be as pumped to see a car as somebody who's new to this community. And so that's always interesting and tough when you have to take three quarters of the cars that are submitted this year won't be inside the gates. And uh, everybody takes that decision a little bit differently. Most of them take it pretty personally. And as you said, the Porsche world is um, very persistent, very detail-oriented. Um, a lot of times pretty emotional and so it's uh, not always easy to be on the other side of the fence and get the uh, blast of emails when it's like I can't believe you didn't pick this or that and it's always like hey it's not personal it's just uh, there's a committee uh, everybody looks at the cars and we chat about it and we go through every single application uh, look at the photos look at the bio look at the history of where the car has been both with us and with other uh, communities other shows and so yeah we take that part very seriously well it's the kind of problem you want to have right I mean uh, to be able to hand pick from so many, that's, that's exactly uh, the kind of place you want to be. Now, you mentioned your venture with Rod, mm -hmm. and I'm curious, I'd like to hear more about that. So this is uh, car storage and social space. It's at Van Nuys Airport, right? Yeah, it's about half a mile from Van Nuys Airport. And the idea um, was how could we create a space that would allow us to pop up events quickly but with a great footprint and lots of versatility. Uh, so we'll have a sort of a garage social space where you can have a, a, a feature of five, six, seven cars of a theme or an OEM might come in and want to activate and display a new product and reveal it, have a cocktail party. Uh, we'll also have a full clubhouse, a social space for people to organize dinners, uh, to have a business meeting, to just hang out with friends. And then across the alley, uh, inside the same footprint, we'll have a 30,000 square foot building um, for people who want to store a car with us, who are coming in from out of town, landing at Van Nuys Airport, which is a huge hub for uh, private aviation in Los Angeles County. Um, and might not be from Southern California, but want to drive the roads, want to enjoy our great winters. Um, so there's a little bit of everything. Um, Haggerty has backstopped us. They have a garage and social brand with points all across the country. So right. there's a lot of community member benefits. But um, one of the parts of Rod and I coming in as longtime friends, we go back uh, to the early 2000s from the racing world, was we wanted to have a creative stamp, not only an operational stamp, not only an event side, but we wanted to tell our story of our families. It's ironic because Rod's grandfather had Valley Custom um, in the Burbank Glendale area and then my grandfather owned the Flying A gas station at the same time only a couple blocks from Rod's grandpa and we don't know <laughs> if they knew each other because neither one of them is here with us today but we assume in that small community they oh, definitely yeah. uh, knew knew of each other if not uh, of one another so uh, we're not far Van Nuys uh, is in the same little area a couple streets over as is Rod's shop so there's a community um, and a storyline there and a common bond so we want to tell some of that storyline through imagery it's not all about our loves for Porsches um, all brands are welcome and ultimately uh, it's a limited amount of, of social uh, members that we'll have and uh, the first point of entry is to have a car at least one car stored with us but there will be an option to join as a social only and um, yeah we just want to do some drives up into the, the the hills we're not far from Angeles Crest we're probably halfway in between the Santa Monica Mountains which are just outside here and the Angeles Crest National uh, Forest so yeah, good, good driving roads, and uh, we'll probably do you know, a few shows a year uh, with some, some themes outside of the normal Emery Outlaws or, or uh, Luftgekult Porsches. 
Um, so yeah, I got my 88 over there right now. Uh, we were talking rovers before we started yeah. this show. And uh, yeah, tell a little bit of a story. I'd love to do some alpha events, um, maybe some JDM. You never know. Nice. Yeah, I mean, the possibilities are endless, really. Yeah, it should be fun. Pat, last year you kind of moved away from racing full-time. I know that must have been kind of a long, long-considered decision. Mm-hmm. Um, how's it been in the past year? How has your life changed? Does it feel strange? It doesn't feel strange. It feels great. Um, I just really got to a point where I was complete in my mind. I feel like I achieved what I wanted to achieve um, in the endurance sports car racing scene. I had the gift of joining Porsche as a brand and being on their factory team for 18 years. And I saw millions and millions of miles of travel and I saw probably 16 countries of racetracks. And I was so fortunate to be on teams that achieved great things, uh, winning championships, winning races like Le Mans, Daytona, Sebring. And I turned 40, I've got two young kids at home, a great wife, um, and I thought to myself, now is the time to springboard into my next act. This is the foundation um, that I've been so fortunate to build for the last three decades. I started racing go-karts in the late 80s. So my whole life I've been behind the steering wheel and I've given everything to my driving and everything else has been secondary and been when I can get to it and it's always like landing from one trip and preparing for the next trip. And so I had this very temporary feeling um, underneath my feet and I'm sure a lot of people who travel for a living are nodding their head and I just thought to myself, this is a great time to just tip my hat to all my team members, to the people in Stuttgart and Atlanta and Carson, who, uh, as Porsche, gave me the platform to just do what I loved and do what I practiced uh, my whole life. And motorsport is such a tricky sport because talent and speed is not enough. You have to understand the marketing side. There's so much expense to get your uh, talents proven or discovered. And so I just felt like it was time and I wanted to go out um, as a works driver for Porsche at a huge event like the Petit Le Mans. And it was never about retiring. It was never about not racing anymore. It was just, I'm not going to do the 200 days a year on the road, um, but I still love to race. I just got back from Monterey. I think I drove five different cars. You did the hill climb. The hill climb as well. So yeah, I was jumping from car to car to car because I love it. Um, not because it was my job, uh, not because I had to win, but just because I love to race. And I think once the, the noose is off the neck, um, you can enjoy motorsport like the majority of people enjoy motorsport and aspire to enjoy motorsport, which is racing with your friends, um, racing for enjoyment, uh, experiencing cars, where at the pinnacle of the sport, whether it's tennis or stock trading, um, when you're on that front line, it's one way only which is perfection and all the fun is consciously stripped out of it subconsciously it's still amazing we're still so fortunate to get to do what we do i mean to be a professional athlete at any domain that's that's a a a life's gift but in in this side of things i i thought well i could do this for another 10 or 20 years and luft would be my side hustle and my kids i would see on the off weekend that i'm home And I thought to myself, man, uh, you know, Porsche is asking me to come on board with them to consult their CEO at a motorsport level, to work as an ambassador, a brand ambassador with their beautiful street cars. Those all those opportunities might not be there if I just push that off for another five or 10 years. So I just decided it's it's now. And it took a little bit of time for me to compartmentalize just 
stepping off that ledge. But um, the morning that the release came out in October of 21, um, I remember being overwhelmed with emotion. And that emotion was, uh, it wasn't sadness, it wasn't um, happy, it was just um, a feeling of completion, a feeling of peace. Contentment. Um, yeah, and gratitude. Like super, yeah. I'm, I'm a very intense uh, competitor um, and I don't spend a lot of time at the racetrack uh, socializing. I don't stay there till the end of the night, um, you know, rubbing elbows with my crew. I'm like back to the hotel, preserve my energy, hydrate, maximum amount of sleep, show up at the last minute so that I'm exposed to the elements for the least amount of time, do my PR responsibilities and get in the car. It was always about performance. But of course, that kind of strips all of the essence of life and the journey away just for the result. And I wanted to complete that uh, mindset that I had from a very young age and uh, to just sort of give the next guy or girl uh, an opportunity to fly the flag for this brand and I'll be there cheering them on. I was at the Penske test in Daytona last Friday and taking the media around and showing them the new LMDH, the new 963 prototype from Porsche. and. Uh, you know, doing over-the-shoulder film and talking to my old engineer that uh, was on my car in 2008 when I was with Penske and Porsche in the RS Spider days, that was all so rewarding and so refreshing. And a lot of people talk about, oh, I can never go to the racetrack unless I'm driving. And I don't feel that way. Good. So I, I guess I'm, I'm at peace with it. I, that's a, that's a uh, five-minute answer to your question. You, you just said so much that I want to kind of un unravel here first of all you touched on how the fun kind of gets squeezed out of it it, it makes perfect sense any professional athlete is going to be in that situation when i look at still photos of you or footage of you at the track in the car you have this game face you are so intensely laser focused it's so obvious mm-hmm is it afterwards that you sort of feel the satisfaction of having done a good job? Can you, in, in other words, can you be in the moment or is it just so intensely competitive and there's so many little tiny things you got to be considering and wor- worrying about that you, you don't have time to be in the moment? Yeah, it's really difficult to be in the moment when um, you're trying to operate at 10 tenths. Right. Um, it's, for lack of a better analogy, it's like, oh, you take a birthday cake and walk it from here 100 feet away um, and, and deliver it to the person whose birthday it is. And now it's a stopwatch, and you need to get from here to there in 2.5 seconds and not drop the cake. <laughs> and then you need to do that for three hours right. and hit your mark every single time right. and be picture perfect and fast it's not a lot of fun. So in a, in a way, <laughs> you can kind of empty your mind, right? Which is, I think, its own reward. Like, for example, motorcycling, right? When you're on the bike, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just thinking about the ride, you know? Is it, is it kind of like that, but at maybe a much more intense level? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the mind can only process one thought at a time. And, and that thought is the next set of corners Um, your gauges, the team in your ear, the competition in front of you, behind you, there's no other time to sit and think like, this is super cool. I mean, there are moments where you get into the race car and there's four guys standing around and it has new tires and the thing is shining bright and it's dialed in and you're hitting your marks and it's, 
it's, those are awesome moments. But most of the moments are not wins. Most of the moments are not glory. Most of the moments you're in pain, you're tired, uh, you, you might have fear, you might have anxiety, you might have, I mean, pro sports, you can watch documentaries for the next two weeks and understand that the differentiator for pro athletes and the very best and the people that I look up to was all in the mental. And, it, and everybody's different in how they fuel their result. Some of it's fear, some of it's ego, some of it's arrogance. It's a combination of all of those things. And I love to talk about it. I can talk about psychology and mindset until uh, the, the sun goes down and comes back up again. I think in the end, um, it's always about two things. Number one is being able to click in and be in your zone and be picture perfect like a switch and click out. If you can do that, you're already ahead of most aspiring athletes or pro athletes even that are there because they have talent enough alone. I didn't. For, for me, I, I feel like I was like a 75% um, of, of perfect on the talent. And then that like 25% I had to make up through understanding the science of the sport, through applying myself, through discipline. And really the unfair advantage for me was surrounding myself with the very best and the highest amount of competition. And that through osmosis taught me how to be a better competitor. So moving to Europe as a 16 year old, leaving my family behind um, and living, working, eating, breathing, sleeping, uh, racing in Europe for six years. I came back to Southern California where we sit today as a different person, as a different human, in how I saw life, how I saw culture, how I saw um, motorsport for sure. And that work ethic, I mean, I would work 60 hours a week um, for no pay, for just room and board. I would race um, all weekend, and then at night I was doing my high school studies. Um, so it was a full on, like in the deep end, uh, have to grow up fast. But without that experience, I don't think I would have had the ingredients to become a professional driver for Porsche. So. Yeah, it was tough in the moment, but it, it gave me the platform. And I think everybody gets to where they want to head a different way. But in the end, you just have to put in the work and, and, and network. I think that um, the effort, but also uh, the intel, I think, was uh, my unfair advantage. I just I was able to, to find people that were willing to share their experience and give me their advice and whatever you want to do. I think free advice is some of the best education out there. Well, you know, you've always struck me as kind of that analytical guy anyway. And I'm glad you, you kind of talked about how comprehensive it is. It's not just being good behind the wheel. Mm -hmm. um, when you got to Porsche, even after all of that, you've gone through all this struggle, this learning, this, you know, scratching and kicking to be a pro. When you got to Porsche, did it feel like, the game had changed like this is now you're leveled up mm -hmm. and what what was that was there anxiety about that obviously you want to do well and and i know that you know that was a competitive process yeah even, a, even just to work for porsche yeah it's a great question i think where i was in my career i knew i was quick um i was confident i was 20 22 years old um, so I wasn't over-processing things. Sometimes wisdom can get in the way of performance. And so I was still pretty naive and pretty raw, but I had great training and uh, a good work ethic. And what I felt was a sense of relief um, because now I had the best team. I had a perfect race car. I had um, enough money to pay my cell phone and my food bill. I used to sit at the bar and, and think about an orange juice and think, I really want a second orange juice, but 
that's another two dollars and two fifty in euro or lira or whatever it was at the time, and <laughs> everything was always like processing. Um, my financial constraints. And now I had a, a deal at Porsche and I could have as many orange juices as I wanted. So I felt like I now had um, some firmer ground underneath me and I understood that I still needed to perform and I understood that I, ne I needed to be consistent and I needed to be marketable and all those types of things. But um, yeah, it, up till that point, I just, I felt like I was always bouncing in and out of, uh, off the couch. And now I had a, a quaint little apartment and a place to go to work every day and to learn about Porsche. And that's really where the education for me started with this company. Um, I lived in a little village about two miles from the gates of Vysok, where all the motorsport and R&D for this company come out of still today. And I would go there. And, and just kind of get in the way and stand in the workshop, stand in the corporate offices. And then on lunch break, I would go to the museum uh, or sorry, the library. I would go to the library and I would read books because everything was talked about in numbers. 908, 911, GT3. And, you know, if you don't know the Porsche world, it's confusing. It's super overwhelming. So I would just go there and look at books and I would see like history and understand where the time plot of our racing or our car world was and why these cars all had product numbers uh, and, and project numbers. So yeah, I, I loved being sort of ingrained in all of that uh, right firsthand. I was only there for one season uh, before I got the promotion to move home and race in IMSA, but that year living in Germany was, was incredible. And I always went back multiple times per year, but I understood that this company was about motorsport, but it was also about streetcars and uh, a certain type of streetcar, a certain performing um, you know, level of engineering and design. And history was so alive and well, and still is with inside of our marketing, with inside the walls of Vysok. And so uh, it was really a great experience and a great platform to engage into uh, what we've done in our past and where we're heading in the future. And I think that that was a lot of the ingredients and that initial thought process for Luft. By the way, how's your German? It's rough. Um, my German struggles because as a country and as a, as a culture, they're so good with their English. And that creates that fallback. You know, you're going to be able to speak English. Right. Where in, in the working class villages of Italy, you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to talk to my tuner unless I learned Italian. And so Italian came much quicker for me than, than German. But, you know, I studied it and I still like to... to get by you know if i take my wife to germany uh, there's no nothing that she's going to go missing uh or, or or want um as far as a taxi or or a drink but no i, I can't really make a german laugh <laughs> that's a tough one yeah a little effort goes a long way when yeah. you're when you're away from home and you're trying to communicate in in the native tongue yeah i think even just asking um you know if you know not a, a word of a foreign language, like, excuse me, do you speak English? Versus just steaming into them with your native tongue and looking at them like they expect, uh, or you expect them to, to come right back to you in your, in your English language. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting to look into the education and the international mindset too of certain uh, countries and when they introduce English as a, a regular subject in school, not just an elective and things like that. So I think immersion, travel, um, and education can go a long way. And, you know, I hope to give my kids a lot more of that like multicultural experience from a young age. Oh, no doubt about it. Um, there's nothing like getting your kids into travel at a young age. Because it's a gift that 
lasts their whole life, and it just it means so much more. You know, yeah. it, it it just it's, it's so expanding, right? Um, you know, you mentioned multiple times athleticism. Mm-hmm. There's always been this silly debate: Are race car drivers athletes? And of course, the answer is yes. But give us an idea of the level of training, because I know you went to camp, mm-hmm. right? Every year you would go to camp and get fit, and there's a whole process behind that. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would come at it from the backside and say the mental um, ability that you have to have to be millimeter perfect and hit all of your marks and do that over and over and over sleep deprived is incredibly, incredibly tricky. It's like archery. You know, it's millimeter perfect that is the difference between first and third. So when your physical starts to lack or you start to fatigue, obviously your mental uh, acute focus goes down. So it's really just that um, one-on-one connection. It's not just that your back hurts or your neck hurts. It's really that your mental starts to slip. And so when we go back to the application of psychology and where your mental Uh, awareness and confidence is even before the game or the race starts if you know that you're prepared if you know you're as strong as anybody on the track or on the field physically then you already have kind of released that from your thought process and you can apply your mental strength to other things that usually turn out better performance so yeah the physicality of it is um, intensely hot uh, lots of g-forces um Noisy, noisy, uh, high cardio. Um, yeah, you know, neck. Uh, you gotta have four Gs of of, of neck resistance, shoulders, hands. Um, you name it. I mean, uh, certain years at Le Mans, I I put twelve hours um, of driving at high speed at two hundred miles an hour into a car um, in a twenty four hour given period, and even in an hour, you probably lose enough fluids and nutrition um, like going on an hour run. So if you imagined um, running 12 hours in a 24 hour period and what that would do to uh, your body in, in depleting its, its stores and its energy, it's a big challenge and, and certainly something that as time went on, uh, things got a little bit tougher uh, with age, but also you became more aware and you knew how to preserve your energy pre-race. Uh, you knew how to recover quicker between stints. So I actually felt stronger and better um, in the car at the end of my career than I did early on. Really? And some of that I think is your, your body adapts and, and you build uh, small muscles um, as time goes on. I remember certain races and certain tracks where even my eyeballs were sore because as you're turning your head through the corner and the centrifugal force is pulling blood and small muscles in your body the opposite direction, you have to resist that pull. Uh, you, you, can, you just feel like you want to lay down on a flat bed and stare at the ceiling and mentally and physically uh, try and recover. But of course, you only have a certain amount of time between the time you get out of the race car and you need to be back in fresh and ready to go again. And that was the trickiest part about endurance racing. If you think about Formula One, if you think about NASCAR, they sort of build up during the weekend qualifying practice and then they have a full three hours of sprinting and then they're done and most of the time unless it's a double header they have a week two weeks to recover with endurance sports car racing you put in that two or three hours and then you get an hour or two off maybe three and then you have to do it again 
and again and again and it just keeps hitting you so um that is the the tricky part of endurance sports car racing for sure you know i don't think it's unfair to compare it to being a fighter pilot it's really a lot of the same stuff mm-hmm. um both mentally physically and also uh in terms of the physics involved right yeah. um is task saturation a thing i mean in other words if you're not in prime physical shape obviously you're not processing oxygen as well you quickly become um unable to maybe adapt to the dynamic situation mm-hmm. do you get task saturated behind the wheel yeah i think there's all kinds of aspects i would say number one is just your ability to recover um is is so key um, how quickly can your body get back to a zone um, that it can operate in another kind of sprint environment um, mentally of course um, and just how does your body take on um, its calories and its hydration um, it, it varies everybody's different I think the output of energy is really as interesting as the intake of your fluids and your nutrition um, how much you can exert mentally um, can really deplete you physically and so you learn about kind of tempering all of that and and the emotion I mean, I I remember races where I wasn't experienced and I was tired before the start of the race Just because of all the build-up and the media and the fans and the spectacle and the lack of sleep the night before time zone changes Etc. So I think it's the same for for most athletes and, and competitors uh, they really have to have that all balanced and refined beforehand. And then it's like that tiebreaker, you know, on the on the seventh set. You know, it's one shot. It's one save. It's one corner. That is the difference between, you know, your, your one opportunity to win the biggest race of your life and being the guy that, that or the girl that, that dropped the cake right at the line. So it's... Um, when you process it, I, I'm, I'm able to talk a lot more about it and process it um, kind of on the backside of my pro career than I would be willing or able to um, in the middle of it. Because sure. a lot of that is your um, survival mechanism. That's your um, hot bag of tools um, to have an edge up on your competition. And uh, you always are looking for the competitor that will show where their weakness might be because that's um, the way in to get that pass done. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Horsepower Heritage will be back right after this. Hey everybody, Maurice Merrick here. And if you're enjoying this episode with Patrick Long, check out the back catalog from October 13th, 2021. It's an episode called The French Speed Connection with Eric Bruton. And it's all about vintage racing and brokering some amazing classic performance cars. I think you'll enjoy it. And now back to the show. Take us back to Le Mans 2004. Your first time at Le Mans, Mm -hmm. your co-drivers are both veterans. Mm -hmm. A lot of experience under their belts. And you guys won your class, Mm -hmm. GT class. Yeah, Le Mans 2004 was was so overwhelming in so many ways. Um, You know, I I knew about the city. Uh, I had lived there five years beforehand. I knew the the prestige of the race and I aspired to be at that race one day as a competitor but I didn't think it would happen my first year first full year as a factory driver and I got the call only a few days before the official tests which happens a couple weeks before the race 
And it was almost surreal because it was like, hey, um, this, this is Uwe Bredel. Um, you know, he's down in Southern California, or sorry, down in Orange County running PM&A. Uh, we're going to send you to Le Mans to drive for Peterson White Lightning. And I was like, okay, yeah, great. So what, what's the, the deal? Well, uh, book a flight, get on the flight, go there, you'll meet the team, and you'll figure out the rest when you get there. And that's all I knew. And in hindsight, they took a risk on me um, putting me in the lead car that year uh, as a rookie. Um, and so what a gift. Again, um, so fortunate. Right place, right time. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they really believed in me. But um, I knew that I had to go there and I had to learn the track. There were no simulators. There was no YouTube. There was nothing. Uh, the first time I saw that place was, other than an old grainy video, was behind the wheel. And I remember being like 20 seconds off the pace. Uh, after the, the pretest, which is one day because they have to close so much of the public road to get the track to operate. And I thought, man, I have a lot of work to do here to pay my dues and to even be worthy of a seat on this car. And everybody around me just gave me confidence and they said, you'll get there. This is the same for everybody the first time they come to this track because the speeds are so high that the sensations are completely unlike anything I had ever felt. And you just don't want to take big bites of the apple because at 200 miles an hour, a small adjustment of the wheel can mean you're in the Armco barrier or even worse, over the barrier and into the trees. So you just, you had to protect the car. It wasn't about protecting yourself as it was taking this car that has thousands of man hours in it, preparing it and making sure that it's going to be on the grid for the start of the race, but also taking some risks to get up to speed. So I'll fast forward to the end and we're leading uh, GT and this is the first time I've been to Le Mans, maybe the second or third 24 hour race I've ever done. And the final stint was supposed to be mine. And I looked at Sasha Mawson, uh, who was the most experienced driver on the team. And I said, dude, I, I can't do this. Like, I'm just not ready to, to take this car uh, through the last stint. So uh, you're going to have to get back in there. And in hindsight, after having to do that for younger drivers, uh, it's a pain to have to think you're done and then to strap back in that squishy, wet, sweaty seat and it's 80 degrees outside and 100 degrees in the car and, and go back out for another hour of, of time. But he knew it was the right thing for the team. And, and afterwards he said, you know, most guys your age wouldn't um, hold their hand up and say, I'm not ready for this. I'm not up for this. I'm too tired. I, I feel too much pressure. But it, it just was that overwhelming. And that's why I tell that story. It was just unbelievable to take play to take part in that race and to be on the cusp of winning it after a battle all night with broken throttle cable and a broken clutch cable and in the pits out of the pits i mean back in 2004 you could have adversity and you could have mechanicals and get in the garage fix the car and push it back out and still win because everybody was going through struggles but um in this day and age you can't get away with one little slip up mechanically or a driver error i mean you're outside the top 10 it's so competitive but back then there really was still um that aspect of endurance racing and so when the car crossed the line uh, I, I couldn't believe it and i remember going to paris that night and waking up the next morning and and the newspaper that was delivered to the hotel door um had our car you know on the front page of the sports section and it, it just was such big news and there was so much uh, man, if, if I never race again, we won the 24-hour of Le Mans in the GT class. I felt like so complete in my career at that point. When you made the decision that you couldn't drive that last leg, was that more mental exhaustion, physical exhaustion, or was it more just the pressure you, you were putting? I mean, yeah, I, I just felt that I 
I, I wasn't there um, to process that pressure. Yeah. I think I was um, pretty tired physically and mentally, and I had a feeling in my mind that everybody has done so much to be right there. You don't want to cusp. let anyone down. Yeah, and we didn't even have a lot of pressure. It wasn't really um, about having to go out and overcome something or stay ahead of a car that was right on our butt. I think we had, you know, a minute lead or something, but it was just, we're so close to pulling this off and I, I didn't want to be the one that screwed it up. And so, um, you know, fast forward two years later, three years later in 2007, um, I'm on a, on a team and it's in our chance to win again and the weather is uh, looking very gray and dark in the skies. We're on slicks, we're going fast. And they put me in the car to finish the job. And of course, torrential downpour on slicks. It's the end of the race. We have pressure from behind. And I never second guessed myself for a second. I was prepared mentally, physically. I knew about the race. I was the most experienced driver on the car. The setup was mine. It was a French team. Uh, so that was different than being with an American team. but that almost fueled me and fueled my confidence because to win as an American in a French owned car, you know, a German manufacturer, but a French owned team um, at Fran you know, at the 24 hours of law in France, it was uh, another wild experience and just a, a differentiator in where I was mentally and physically after having a couple of those races under my belt. Hmm. By the way, driving in the, in the wet, I know you're a dirt bike guy, so you're used to getting loose, getting squirrely. But is is it the same in the wet? I mean, obviously, hydroplaning is a real factor. Loss of control is a real factor. It's not like on the dirt where you can throttle steer the car and everything. What, what's the difference? Yeah, the wet is um, very abrupt. It's m less than like snow or dirt where you feel the loss of grip and the communication from the tire and sort of that G meter in your butt and you're able to correct and look through a slide and things happen a lot slower. With the wet, it's more like going down the fast lane on the freeway and you aquaplane. And so everything's great and then all of a sudden you have no control and then the car lands again. Hopefully. That's more, yeah, that's more what wet racing is like. Things right. happen very abrupt, very quickly. And it's eerie yeah. because you'll, you'll be railing through a corner with lots of downforce and lots of grip and the tires are doing their job. And then you'll just hit like an oil slick, which of course is standing water. Um, so it's very tricky. Uh, it rewards a smooth driver. Um, one of the things I remember, a light bulb going off, I was driving in the rain at Long Beach, which is a torrential place to race at, in the wet because you just have concrete walls on both sides of you and the, the surface is uneven. And I thought to myself, damn, this car doesn't stop and it doesn't accelerate because you just don't have the traction for the braking and you don't have the traction for the acceleration. So I'm going to just make my speed in the center of the corner because, you know, I'm not on the brakes, I'm not on the throttle and it seems like the car has a good side, uh, side bite or, or a lot of lateral grip depending on what country you're from. So <laughs> basically I was braking early and light and then jumping off the brake and just sending the car through the corner with as much speed as I could so that I could you know, extend that apex and carry my speed through the center of the corner where in dry weather, the idea would be completely the opposite. It would be like brake as late and hard as you can, make up that time in the brake zone, 
pivot the car squared up like a motocross bike and then get it straight so that you have equal weight over the rear tires and then blast out in a straight line. So it just goes to show that you have to have a completely different discipline in, in the same car, the same race, and the only thing that's changed is, is the tires and the weather. And then there were a lot of races where I was racing on slicks in the wet and the track was either so long or the conditions were changing so quickly that the team was like, you know what, we're not even gonna chase the weather. We'll just leave you on slicks and you're just gonna have to survive. And of course, then you don't have the compound uh, of rubber and you don't have the water uh, evacuation to really keep the car under you and you just have to kind of tiptoe through it. So a lot of um, endurance racing is, is measuring the elements, measuring risk. Um, they say the line between brave and stupid is very fine. So the hero zero line is always the, the, the devil that you want to dance with. And the idea is getting up to speed as quickly as possible and putting the car right on the edge for as many corners and laps in succession as you can. But don't go over that other edge because then what was it all for? You know, you could do 31 of 32 laps, the fastest car on the track, but if you it up on the 32nd lap then it, all those 31st 31 laps before were erased right you talked a lot about technique just now um can you describe trail braking because sure. i think people understand uh early versus late braking they understand apexing and they understand throttle steer but trail braking is kind of a different concept yeah i mean trail braking is a a loaded subject a loaded question um i think that Talking about adaptation and being able to drive to the grip that's available, whether the, the weather or your tires are changing or the track changes, um, you have to be able to measure quickly how much grip there is and how much speed you can carry into a corner. But going a little more on the nerd science of driving and dynamics, whether that's on the street or on the track, you have four contact patches, which are your tires each of those tires can only perform with so much load. It needs a certain amount of weight on that tire for it to work, but then there's a threshold where too much weight means it doesn't work either. So trail braking is really entering a corner and using the brake pedal to place weight where you want it and to extend your brake zones, if you will, if you have a 300 foot brake zone and you brake at the 300 point and you brake in a straight line for 300 feet, versus somebody that breaks at 290 feet and then the last 10 feet that they have of braking is as they turn in. That's another example of trail braking where you're really just extending your brake zone into the corner. But of course, usually if you're on the brakes, you're not on the throttle and it means that you're decelerating. So someone who trail brakes might not be automatically quicker because that means they're probably gonna be to throttle a little later than the, than the guy or girl that's braking at the 300 board. But the reality of trail braking, I would say eight out of 10 times that I used trail braking, it was to keep weight on a given corner of the car to help turn um, or to release the brake to help the car turn because of course depending on the nature of your tire the compound the tread um, and the the grip that you have the cambers of the surfaces etc sometimes um, getting weight off a tire actually gets it turning or gets it rolling so yeah and you get into kind of the whole understeer oversteer thing too right yeah and you can induce oversteer or slide or loose or however you want to um, coin the term um, by putting 
uh, an excess amount of weight on the front. I mean, I would say that drifters or sprint car drivers will use trail braking to set the car to actually quickly throw weight onto the front to loosen up the rear and to get some oversteer or some rotation. opposite lock, yeah, rotation in the car. Um, but the reality is, is that in endurance sports car racing with modern product, you've got great tires, you know, four-way adjustable dampers, lots of aerodynamics. The idea is basically in, in the most simplistic form, brake initially as hard as you can. And then as you start to turn in, you're releasing brake pressure. So as your hands are turning, your foot is coming off the brake. Then you get to a point where you're at your maximum steering lock, your maximum angle of rotation. And then on the way out of the corner, as your hands are opening up, your acceleration is, is happening simultaneously. Where you see people get into trouble going into the corner or coming out of the corner with having spins or understeering off is they're usually, their hands are still and their feet are really active or their feet are doing nothing and their hands are doing a lot. But if you can kind of keep some connectivity between how you apply throttle and brake and how you apply steering, then you, you'll be much further and, and better off than most. And the 911 is a very different platform than a lot of other racing cars, mm -hmm. right? But talk about, from your point of view, what's what's great about the 911 as a competitive, as a competition platform? Yeah, I mean, I I've learned to drive um, rear engine, front engine, mid engine cars. Um, probably spent more time in a rear engine 911 than any other car um, in in my career. Um, the great news about weight over the rear axle is traction. That's number one. Squat, um, the ability to have that weight uh, on the back when you want to go compared to a big V8 front engine car. All the weights up front, you want to get out of the corner, you nail the throttle, there's no weight on the rear axle and traction is usually one of the biggest things that, that those guys complain about. We have that traction. On the opposite end, the reason that I'm biased towards a, a rear engine car is that trail brake big send on the way into the corner, you want to pass another competitor or you want to brake super late on a qualifying lap. Now your front tires are pretty light up front. So that braking, that inertia, all that load that the, the gravity sends to the front tire is money. That's, that's music to the front tire's ears and that's what the front tires want. So you can brake late and put all that extra load on the front axle where in a front engine car, not ideal for turn-in to have all that mass of the engine and the drivetrain up front on front tires, and now you're sending all that weight up front. Usually it overloads the tire and you see a lot of understeer or overheating of the front tires on the way in. So um, the inverse is that you could have some understeer uh, or push with a 911 uh, rear engine car. And so we, over the years, have evolved and, and created a camber, a geometry, all kinds of different engineering disciplines to really develop these cars around a rear engine. And I think it works really well. But, you know, mid-engine uh, is arguably uh, the best of both worlds. Sure. I'd say the only thing on mid-engine cars that I don't love is, is that that polar moment, that time when the car does change direction a little too quickly and catches you off guard, it's really hard to catch a car, a mid-engine car that goes sideways, where rear engine and front engine cars, it's a lot more fun and a lot easier for me to hang the car out and uh, dance it around on the rear. More predictable in a sense. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, the, again, when a moment uh, of oversteer or understeer or you lose traction on a set of tires or one given tire, 
you want that communication. You want that warning. You want that pre-exposure uh, so you can catch and release and, and almost be instinctive in, in what the car is about to do. And that part is, is so important that you get communication from the car and the tire. And when you have a super stiff, low mid-engine car with lots of downforce, it makes a lot of grip and it makes a lot of speed. But when it goes wrong, it goes wrong in a hurry. And a lot of times it's, it's tricky to catch. Hmm. Let's talk about coaching and mentoring because you've done some, right? Mm-hmm. Does that, have you found that that actually keeps you sharp? I think coaching, mentoring um, is, is number one, uh, a gift. Uh, enable, it, it enables you to share with uh, what you've learned and pass it on. And it sounds cliche, but it's paying it forward. Like in my day, I would stand outside of a pit box and wait for a professional driver to finish his debrief just got out of the car. And certain drivers would make time for me. And they would say like, oh, I like what you're working on here. I don't really like what you're working on there. Or go talk to Chip. He might have a seat opening in a Formula Ford. So you, you have to sort of see that someone made that time for you, at least for me. And so I try to give back in that way. Um, but I coach differently. Um, I, I, my expertise is not watching data and video and forensically telling you, oh, you need to adjust your steering lock here or there. I like to talk much more uh, large figures, low-hanging fruit, how you're applying yourself, whether that's creating a lap in a driving style or how you go into a race weekend or you debrief out of a race weekend. I like to talk about strategy. Um, where are you trying to get in your career? What's your five-year goal? What's your one-year goal? And, and I love to try and problem solve and, and cut out all the noise and all of that overwhelming choice that a young driver is faced with in, in focus. Not so much where to spend their sponsor dollars, but where to actually go look for sponsor dollars. And if I can help suggest a way um, and, and share my notes in how uh, I made mistakes or found success, that's, that's awesome. And then, of course, the mental side, I think um, being able to teach somebody uh, how to understand their own brain and how they operate and how they extract performance from themselves. Uh, I love to do seminars, give discussions, uh, keynote speaking uh, with, with groups of people from all different backgrounds who want to drive on track uh, competitively, not competitively, to do it safely, to do it efficiently, to do it quickly. Um, and, and ultimately, if you can kind of own the room and speak to uh, a varied uh, background of people and connect with them uh, through your own uh, travels and motivate them to chase their dreams and to ignore their fears, then um, that, that's a lot of fun. It's a fun way to spend a, a weeknight. Pat, I know you obviously, you love modern cars, modern Porsches, but you also are way into the vintage stuff. So what are your two picks, a modern car and a vintage car i mean what are your favorites and they can buy by the way they don't have to be street cars or uh, competition cars whatever yeah to go out and enjoy driving um to me uh a 70s 911 is is pretty legit uh pure it has the right amount of performance but it's still very visceral and you're still very connected i mean this car mechanically fuel injected 1972 911 with a 2.7 uh, engine it's not a huge displacement engine there's no turbos there's no uh, modern technology in that car but it's just the right amount of blend of it feels like a race car and it's fully engaging 
but you're not going that fast. Um, you know, these cars have a 185 front tire on them. I mean, it's a right. it's a small front tire, and so um, that's a, that's a very pure driving experience. There's no air conditioning. There's no radio. There's no Bluetooth. It's just you and the car. Um, on a modern side, the creature comforts and having everything. Um, you know, right now I'm enjoying electric cars. Really? Um, believe it or not, uh, I have a Taycan. It's a, a Cross Turismo, which is a wagon, a Porsche four-door uh, electric car, uh, 100% electric. And I underestimated that I was going to love this car as much as I do. Um, it's so linear. It's so smooth. The fit and finish, the craftsmanship, the hardware is the differentiator for me. There are a lot of amazing pieces of equipment out there from different manufacturers, tons of technology, tons of software, tons of performance. But when the door closes, it's, it's not that, that thump of a Porsche. And where I sit in the car ergonomically, um, it's, it's not the same in other manufacturers. So of course I'm biased, but um, I'll put the Porsche uh, Taycan against anything out there um, as a full you know, 100,000 mile car, 200,000, 300,000 mile car that's just built um, so, so uh, thoroughly and so much attention to detail. And then, yeah, they just absolutely rip. I mean, my kids, they, they're always saying like, let's, let's go, let's, let's get on the gas because it's just so linear. It's so instantaneous right. that you think about where you want to be and you're there. It just jumps. How old are your kids, by the way? Uh, my kids are four and seven. Okay, yeah. yeah so, so we, I mean, obviously my seven-year-old's been around the track uh, his yeah. whole life and my four-year-old as well. Um, both of them race uh, BMX bikes, so they understand competition. Um, they've been to the races, and, and they think it's cool, and, and, but I'm still just dad. Right. Um, that's my job, um, you know, and, and otherwise, you know, we're at the soccer field or we're walking to the park like everybody else, and uh, I don't have trophies or photos up around the house. Um, all of that is either confined to an office or a little garage off-site. Um, there's no I love me shrines in my house or any of that type of stuff. But, you know, we just we talk about uh, work hard. Uh, we talk about be a good sport, uh, enjoy what you're doing um, and uh, just be a good human. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you obviously have that balance, you know, you're striving for that balance. So many people have a difficult time dividing family and career and all of that. It's it's not easy to keep everything kind of st stable. Yeah, no, every day is a new day and uh, just sort of look ahead and, and grow wherever you can. Pat, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to spend time with you today. You're a consummate professional. What you're doing for the, not just the Porsche community, but the gr greater car community is amazing. And I just really appreciate this. Ah, it's been great to chat with you. Uh, awesome questions. And always love to kind of look back on memory lane and talk racing, but also talk like, what are we all here for? What are we all doing? And uh, not to get too deep and, and moody, but yeah, it's fun to kind of break it down sometimes. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. So Lufgekult 8 is October 9th, Correct. right? Yeah. yeah. In Los Angeles, Port of LA. Mm -hmm. um, and people can follow you at PL uh, Motorsport. Yeah, PL Motorsport on Instagram and of course Luf Kukult on yeah, Instagram. Exactly. Patrick Long, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to click that follow button, leave me five stars and a quick review. 
And if you want to support the show another way, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage and you can chip in as little as two bucks to keep this great content coming. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, October 5th for a story about capturing the most elegant automotive shapes with the stroke of a brush. My guest is renowned fine artist Anna Louise Felstead. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.